0: Hello, welcome to the Bore You To Sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Secrets of Polar Travel and by Robert E. Peary. Published in 1917, this story explores the ice, and the ships that allowed us to get there. My name is Teddy, and I am to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background, while you slowly fall. Asleep Thank you to everybody Who shared their words of gratitude With me during the week I especially liked The iTunes review From Leah Menace in New Zealand I'm glad you find The podcast boring Thank you to all Patrons and sponsors Who continue to support the show Financially with a monthly Contribution Whether it's $1 or $5 Your support allows me to bring out more episodes to help those who need them. If you would like to sponsor the show, because the podcast helps you fall asleep, please visit boyytosleep.com. If you find the podcast beneficial, I have a special favour to ask. Please share the podcast with a friend who may need a good night's rest. It would also be amazing if you could, please leave a review and comment in iTunes, or leave the show a rating in Spotify. And if you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show. If you would like, you can say hello at boytosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Secrets of Polar Travel Chapter 1 Building a Polar Ship Of all the special tools that a polar explorer requires for the successful prosecution of his work, his ship stands first and preeminent. This is the tool which is to place him and his party and supplies within striking distance of his goal, the tool without which he can accomplish nothing. The builder of a polar ship should live with his craft from the time the keel is laid, till she is complete and has made her trial trips. He should see that every timber that goes into her is sound, tough and seasoned he should see the tests of iron for her bolts and know that the iron is tough and homogeneous. he should see the bolts driven and upset or the nuts set tight as the case may be he should direct the scarfing and the notching of the timbers in order to secure the maximum strength and binding grip he should watch the caulking and the tarring like a hawk and see that no place is slighted that when it is done he may have that delight of a seaman, a tight ship. He should pass sleepless nights going over again and again the calculations for his engines and boilers and in checking and rechecking weights, dimensions and displacement. In this way, by following every step of the ship's growth, and sitting up night after night, studying every detail with a view, to improving and strengthening it, when the work is done, he will know every inch of his ship inside and out. Later in the grim, protracted fight with the ice, he will feel in regard to his ship as Sullivan and Willard, each felt on the eve of a great battle, regarding his powerful body, that it can be depended upon absolutely. It is a wonderfully satisfactory feeling, and it counts far towards success. A quite general idea... Regarding the work of a polar ship, seems to be that such a ship breaks up the ice of one season, like river and harbour icebreakers. As a matter of fact, smooth, unbroken ice of uniform thickness is rarely found in northern voyages except in Melville Bay, or at the end of the season, when new ice is forming, the chief work of a polar ship is to push and pry and wedge its way in and out among cakes and floes, ranging from three to twenty or fifty and even up to one hundred and twenty feet thick. A passage cannot be smashed through such ice and nothing remains but to squeeze and twist and dodge through it. A hundred Yomaks, the powerful Russian icebreaker, emerged. in one could accomplish nothing in such ice. Many qualities are necessary in a first-class polar ice fighter. First, there must be such a generally rounded model, as we will rise readily when squeezed and thus escape the death crush of the ice then there must be no projection of keel or of other part to give the ice an opportunity to get a grip or to hold the ship from rising. When the Jeannette was destroyed northeast of the New Siberian Islands, the ice on one side of her caught and held her firmly, while the floe on the other side Turning down under her side caught the keel and with its resistless pressure opened up the ship her entire length along the garboard strake. She then filled and when the ice pressure was released she sank. The polar ship must be most heavily braced and trussed to enable it to withstand terrific pressure of ice flows and hold its shape until the pressure is released by the rising of the ship or to make it possible for her to be supported at each end only or in the middle or thrown out onto the ice so she would rest on her bilge during a convulsion of the flows without strain or injury. Power and strength and solidity to fight a way through ice rather than drift inertly with it are absolutely essential. For ramming, she must have a sharply raking stem which will rise in the ice at each blow. This not only makes it possible for a loaded ship to deliver blows at full speed without danger of smashing in her bows or starting her fastenings or seams, but also gives her an initial impetus astern when she backs for another blow. When it is understood that this ramming may continue for hours, I have used my ship in this way, continuously for 24 hours in crossing Melville Bay, striking a blow, backing, then going ahead full speed for another. The value of this little assistance with each blow will be appreciated. The shape of the bow is also important in ramming. If to bluff, Headway is deadened, and the force of the blows is lessened. If too sharp, the ship may stick at each blow, and require more time and power to back out each time. The run of the polar ship should be full rather than fine, to keep the passing ice away from the propeller as much as possible the ship must be as short as practicable and have a lively helm to enable her to twist and turn rapidly and sharply through the narrow, tortuous lanes of water among the ice fields. It will be seen at once that a ship for Arctic or Antarctic work must be as small as the size of the party, and the amount of supplies, equipment, and coal for the proposed work will permit. The smaller a ship can be built, the greater will be her strength and the ease with which she can be handled. Finally, the polar ship must be a good sea boat to ride out the furious autumn gales of the North Atlantic and polar oceans. This is especially important in South Polar work, with its long voyage and cyclonic blizzards. Many are under the impression that steel should be used in constructing Polar ships. The idea is erroneous, for though a ship so made would be strong structurally, she would be particularly vulnerable to the ragged, sharp corners of heavy ice. Wood, with its elasticity and toughness, is the prime essential in the construction of a ship of this kind. It is also virtually impossible to repair injury to a steel ship during the voyage, but steel and methods to composite shipbuilding used in a vessel's interior, may reduce weight and increase her strength. Numbers of failures and catastrophes in polar work are directly attributable to unsuitable model of the ship. Particularly striking examples of this were the Polaris and the Jeannette. Neither of these ships should ever have been allowed to go into the ice as their straight sides give them no possible chances to lift when squeezed by the ice and their destruction was only a matter of time when they should be squarely caught between two floes. In the case of the Jeanette Malville's engineering skill postponed the catastrophe for a time but the final result was inevitable Virtually all the ships used in the history of ice navigation have been the sailing vessels built in Scotland, Norway and the United States for the whaling and sealing industries These whalers were short, stocky heavily sparred and square-rigged. The victory used by John Ross in 1829 was fitted with auxiliary steam power and was the first attempt to utilise such motive power for ice work. The innovation of steam with paddle wheels than which nothing could have been more impracticable for ice navigation proved a decided failure, and the engine was finally torn out and thrown overboard, and the voyage continued under sail. The Norwegians operating in the waters about Spitsbergen, Jan Mayen and Nova Zembla, the Americans in Bering Sea and Hudson Bay, encountered ice conditions strikingly different from those met by the Scotch, whose region of operations was chiefly in Davis Strait, Baffin Bay, Lancaster Sound, together with their tributaries and the seas about eastern Greenland. Broadly speaking, the work of Norwegians and Americans was carried on among floes and broken ice drifting in open seas through which they had led their way while the Scotch in Melville Bay encountered an almost solid stretch of one's season's ice, and in the narrow landlocked channels to the westward, the currents of which are notoriously strong, they had to contend with old and heavier ice. Someone has very aptly said, that American whalers used steam to avoid ice. The Scotch to go into and through it. The following average proportions of beam to length among these whalers is rather interesting. Scotch 1 to 5, Norwegian 1 to 4, American 1 to 4, The average ratio in modern schooners built in Bath is 1 to 4. The Scotch, thanks to the shrewdness of their seamen and builders, and over 100 years of experience in whaling work, where the best ships secured large financial returns, have gradually evolved the more powerful and efficient type of ship and this type has been used exclusively by the British even in their latest expeditions. It had long been a recognised fact that a form of hull which would permit a ship to rise readily and easily under pressure was desirable, yet the Fram was the first ship to meet this requirement. The fram was built with a special view to drifting in and with the ice. Her beam was about one third her length and her hull was so designed as to allow her to rise easily under pressure. While she was well adapted for this work she would have been still better fitted for it if she had been bowl shaped. Moreover, appearance, speed, ability to push through the ice, and virtually everything that goes to make a ship seaworthy, was sacrificed to ensure this quality. The Gauss, the German Antarctic ship, was much like the Fram, though less pronounced in type, having a broad beam of 36 feet but with a greater length to make her more seaworthy for the long voyage to the Antarctic regions. Her ratio is 1 to 4, as compared to the Fram's ratio of 1 to 3. The British Discovery, built for Antarctic exploration, was also of the sailing type, with auxiliary steam power, She was built with a little broader beam and a draft slightly less than that of the Scotch Whalers, with a ratio of 1 to 5. She differed from the Fram and the Gauss in that she was not specially constructed to rise under pressure, and the rake of her stem was somewhat greater than in previous ships, With the building of the Roosevelt came a complete reversal of former practice in ships for the Arctic and Antarctic regions. She was the first Polish ship built that was first of all a powerful steamer. All her predecessors had been sailing vessels, usually full-rigged barks with steam as a secondary consideration. This was done to economize on coal and enable the ship to cover long distances at slow speed and be gone for years if necessary. In the Roosevelt, sail power was a mere auxiliary, and everything was given over to making steam power first and foremost, and her strength sufficient to withstand the ice. This is undoubtedly the correct principle on which to build any polar ship for effective results. For this method, the Smith Sound route is specially advantageous, affording a coasting voyage, ample facilities for caching coal, as well as presenting opportunities to obtain coal en route. As the Roosevelt was to be built for navigating the very seas where the Scotch gained their valuable experience, and for which their ships were specially designed and improved, the Scotch model seemed the proper one to use as a base for studies. In the case of Nansen and the British and German polar expeditions, the size of the ship was determined by fixing the size of the party, the length of the expedition, and the amount of coal which would be consumed by the engines and the cargo to be carried, all of which factors, when the dead weight of the ship and machinery was added, would give the displacement required. In the case of the Roosevelt, I believed it advisable to settle in advance the size and proportions which would come nearest to balancing and meeting the various requirements, allowing the difference between her displacement and her dead weight to go for cargo capacity, chief of which would be coal. The size determined was 184 feet overall with 35 feet beam and 16 feet draught, loaded and a load water line of 166 feet. These dimensions make her almost as long as, but with a slightly greater beam than, the Discovery, the British Antarctic ship. Her length ratio while not quite as fine as that of the Scotch model, is much finer than the Norwegian or American averages. After determining her length and beam, came the question of draft. For this ship navigating the waters of Smith Sound, a light draft is far better than a heavier one permitting her to hug the shore in order to get around the barriers, or when crowded by heavy ice, to retreat close to the shore, and let it ground outside the ship. Another distinct advantage of light draught in a ship, is the greater ease with which she will rise under the heavy pressures of ice flows. The greater her draught the harder it is for her to rise and avoid the grip of ice. So much depends on the ship in the serious work of ice navigation that it may be well to describe in detail the ship which I consider the ablest of ice fighters. The official measurements of the Roosevelt are as follows. Length. One hundred and eighty four feet, breadth thirty five point five feet, depth sixteen point two feet, gross registered tonnage six hundred and fourteen tons, maximum load displacement about fifteen hundred tons. The keel, main keelsons. Stem and stern posts, frames, plank shear, waterways, and garboard strake are white oak, beams, sister keelsons, deck clamps, tween deck waterways, bilge strakes, ceiling, and inner course of planking are yellow pine. The outer planking is white oak and the decks of Oregon pine. Both the ceiling and the outer course of white oak planking are edge bolted from stem to stern and from plank shear to garboard strake. The fastenings are galvanized iron bolts going through both courses of planking and the frames and riveting up over washers on the inside of the ceiling. The great oak timbers of the keel, false keel and keelsons, bolted and strapped and scarfed together in every way that experience and ingenuity could suggest, formed a rigid backbone over six feet high. The oak timber sources were searched to secure these timbers, and some of them perhaps could not be duplicated today. Massive oak timbers formed the stem, stern and rudder posts, bolted and strapped to each other and to the keel. The frames or ribs of the Roosevelt were placed almost close together, each made of three courses of selected timbers bolted together. At the stem, the ribs were close together, and the triangular space at the bow between the port and starboard ribs was filled in solid for a distance of some ten feet aft of the stem with oak timbers bolted and scarfed together to make a solid ram. Main deck beams and tween deck beams were unusually large and spaced unusually close together. The latter were placed on a water line instead of with a shear, so that they were just below the load water line where the severest and most frequent ice pressure would come. Each main deck beam together with the tween deck beam below it, and four stout diagonal braces to the ship's sides, and a two and a half vertical steel tie rod from the bottom of the keel to the upper side of the deck binding altogether, formed a double king post truss, one superimposed upon the other. The truss arrangement was made possible by my method of housing the personnel. Of the expedition in light, roomy quarters on deck, rather than below the decks, the sides of the ship varied from 24 to 30 inches in thickness, these sides supported at every 4 feet of the ship's length by the truss system above described and still further reinforced by three solid timber transverse bulkheads, were immune from being crushed in. To avoid unnecessary weight, no planking was used between decks. There were no interior fittings, and spars and rigging were as lightly made as possible. The hatch combings were of stout white oak, Built almost as high as the top of the bulk walks, to add to the safety of the ship in heavy weather. To protect her planks from the gnawing and ice while steaming through it, as well as to reduce friction, the ship was surrounded at the water line with an armor belt of dense, slippery green art. This wood imported from Guinea expressly for the purpose is so tough and dense that spikes or bolts cannot be driven into it but must have holes bored for them the shipyard which puts on the green heart usually has to get a new set of saws planers and drills for the next job and the echoes of profanity linger for a long time The massive construction of the Roosevelt so impressed the inhabitants of Bucksport, accustomed to usual shipbuilding, that one of the village oracles is said to have delivered himself around the glowing stove of the hotel office of the following. By heck, there's so much wood in that damn ship that she'll sink when they launch her. After the hull of the Roosevelt was completed, she was put into dry rock and watered, that is, water was pumped into her to detect any bolt holes that had not been filled with a bolt or any seam that had been overlooked in caulking just as one would test a pail by filling it with water to see if it leaked. By this test, leaks are located that cannot be detected in any other way, and the explorer during his voyage is saved the maddening annoyance of listening to trickling of incoming water as he lies in his bunk at night, of the daily clank of the pumps, and of a ship with bilges full of ice at the end of the polar winter. In regard to engine power, my ideas have been radically different from those of other navigators. I have believed in all the power it was possible to get into the ship I know a few more comfortable feelings for the commander of a ship beset in the ice than the knowledge that he has beneath his feet the power that with the least slackening of the ice pressure will enable him to force his ship ahead on her course. The motive power of the Roosevelt consisted of a single Inverted compound engine, capable of developing a thousand horsepower and driving an 11-foot four-blade propeller, two water tube boilers and one Scotch boiler-supplied steam. Two specially distinctive features of the machinery of the Roosevelt were a large bypass by means of which, by turning a valve steam from all the boilers at full pressure, could be turned directly into the big 52-inch low-pressure cylinder, more than doubling the power for a short time. That is, as long as the boilers could meet this excessive demand. The object of this was to give me a reserve of power with which to extricate the ship from a particularly dangerous position. On at least two occasions, this device accomplished all that was expected of it, and by resistlessly forging the ship ahead a length or two against all odds, removed her from the line of deadly pressure, and so saved her. The other was an enormously heavy and strong propeller and shaft. The shaft was a 12-inch diameter solid steel forging, a shaft big enough for a 2,000-ton tramp steamer. The propeller was correspondingly heavy. The object of this was to prevent the complete crippling of the ship by breaking of shaft or propeller. This idea entailed unusual weight and expense, but it served its purpose and was never regretted. When in July 1906, the Roosevelt was smashed against the unyielding ice foot at Cape Union, tossed about like an eggshell, and treated generally as if she were of no account a particularly vicious corner of an old floe struck her astern, tore off the ponderous white oak skeg, or after stern post, and, catching under propeller and projecting end of shaft, lifted the whole after part of the ship as a man would lift a wheelbarrow, until her heel was out of water and held her in this way for several hours until the tide changed had propeller and shaft been of usual proportions neither would have ever made another revolution as it was my 12 inch shaft was not even thrown out of line and barring the broken propeller blade the machinery suffered no damage And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to old ships venturing into the polar. I'm also hoping that the story was not too interesting so that you're feeling asleep or tired right now. I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. But until then, good night.